Welcome back to the 2AM Book Review Club, where we stay up late talking about books or talk about books that made us stay up late. As I mentioned in my most recent episode, which was a State of the Pod episode, this month we are going to be switching things up. Usually in my episodes, I try to talk about books that I liked, often books that I really, really liked, or at the very least, books that I find worthy of interesting and thought-provoking discussions. Now, that's not to say that I have never made episodes complaining about books, because that's not true. But... Just in general, I do try to keep things on the positive side. This month, however, we are going to be doing a mini-series on bad thrillers. Thrillers that were disappointing, not thrilling, or just straight-up silly. We're heading into the summer here, and it's going to be beach read season. And I think that this mini-series will be a great opportunity for us to let our hair down and have some fun as we welcome in vacation season. I am actually really looking forward to doing this mini-series, and in the future, I do plan for it to be a recurring mini-series that we'll do from time to time when I feel like things have gotten maybe a little heavy and we just kind of need a break. So if you ever have any suggestions for a bad thriller, please head over to the book suggestions post on my Substack, which I will be linking in the description leave a comment. I am actually currently looking for another bad thriller to round out this current mini-series that we're doing. I seem to have miscalculated somehow, and I only had three books prepped for the mini-series, but it turns out I actually need four books. So if you have any suggestions at all, please just head over to the post and drop a comment. What would be really helpful for me is if you clarify that this is a bad thriller recommendation, the title of the book, the author, and what would also be really, really nice is if you could maybe leave a sentence telling me why you think that this is a bad thriller. You know, just like an incentive for me to check out this book. So yeah, that that would be really helpful. Obviously, I am perfectly capable of finding bad thrillers on my own, but at the same time, if you have any suggestions, I would I would really like that. It it would be helpful. And I do just want to be clear that this is not just going to be like a book bashing mini series. 
because for every bad thriller that we talk about, I will also be providing a recommendation for a better thriller that deals with similar themes or character archetypes or situations because I really, really don't like the idea of bashing on books for no reason. I love books. I want people to read books. And so just because bad thrillers exist doesn't mean that good thrillers don't exist. You know what I mean? And so you can think of this as kind of like a PSA, like PSA, this is a bad thriller. However, if you want to read a good thriller, here's a suggestion. You know what I mean? And so for every bad thriller, out there, I am going to be hammering home that there are many, many good thrillers as well. So with that out of the way, let's get into our first bad thriller in this mini-series, What Happened to the Bennets by Lisa Scottoline. This is a recent release. It came out in 2022 and I was actually really excited about it. It sounded really cool. I first saw it in a bookstore and the cover caught my eye and I jotted down the title. And then I came home, forgot about it for a bit. It popped up on Libby. And right before I checked it out, I made the mistake of going to Goodreads. And the reviews there made me decide, oh, this is probably a book I want to stay away from. But then I came up with the idea for this miniseries and I knew I needed to read it. So here we are. Before we proceed, I do want to give my usual spoiler alert, my usual spoiler warning. I am going to be spoiling the entire story, the entire book. Pretty much every little detail in a way that I don't usually do for any book. Definitely, definitely do not listen to this episode if you want to read this book. I personally do not find this book to be worth my time. I do not really think it's worth anyone's time, but my opinion is obviously incredibly incredibly subjective. I am a very, very critical reader just because I have read so much and because I continue to read so much. And so my opinion is definitely, definitely not going to align with everyone's. So I definitely know that even for a book like this, which I consider to be a bad thriller and honestly a bad book, there are still going to be people out there who will enjoy this book. And I think that's fine. I actually think that's great. That's the beauty of books. Everyone feels differently about the exact same book, which is why there are so many of them. I truly do believe that there is a book out there for everyone. And I really am not here to say that there is an objectively correct opinion that you can hold about any book, right? Particularly when it comes to fiction. And I have certainly read my share of questionable books, and I am not in a place where I can reasonably judge 
anyone for their reading tastes. So my honest opinion is you can read whatever you want. And I would say, don't let anyone shame you into thinking that your opinions aren't valid because fiction is there to entertain you. And what entertains you is up to you. You know what I mean? So with that said, I did not like this book. So I am going to spoil it. I'm going to make fun of it in excruciating detail. But if you read this book or are planning to read this book and you end up enjoying it, then that's fine. I'm not here to say that that's wrong. I'm just here to say I didn't like it. Does that make sense? All right, with that out of the way, feel free to listen if you are good with spoilers. Probably don't listen if you're planning to read this book. Okay, so spoiler warning, you have been warned. For the first time ever, I am going to also issue a content warning. The thing about bad thrillers, or really thrillers of any kind, is that they deal often with very heavy themes. And so I am just going to put it out there. This thriller does deal with murder and the murder of a child. And so if you're not in a place where you can't handle like continual references to this event, which kickstarts the entire book, then I would not recommend necessarily listening to this episode. And believe me, I very much dial it down. In the book, it's just nonstop. I try not to talk about it as much as I can, but with that said, it's going to come up a lot. So there we are. If you aren't okay hearing about this for the next hour, hour and a half, maybe even two hours, I already know this is going to be a ridiculously long episode. And so if you don't think you can handle that, then it's perfectly fine, you know, to just exit the episode and maybe go listen to one of my more lighthearted episodes. This is going to be a lighthearted episode, but it is going to reference this event. And so I am just going to put that out there and issue a content warning. Okay, spoiler warning done, content warning done. Let's get into it. So like I said, all of this started with Goodreads. I saw this book on Libby, I made the mistake of going to Goodreads. And when you go to Goodreads to see what people have to say about this book, this is the first review that you'll read. Okay, so I'm just going to read you this review now so you can see what made me initially stay away from this book and then what also made me return to this book when I decided to do this mini-series. The story starts off with a bang when... Jason Bennett, a.k.a. St. Jason, his wife Lucinda, and their children, Allison and Ethan, are carjacked. Things take a horrific turn, and the family's lives are changed forever. The FBI becomes involved, and the family must go into the Witness Protection Program. From here, the story took a sharp downhill turn. At 400 pages, it needed serious editing. 
there was a lot of repetitiveness, and if the author did any little bit of research into a subject, she included it in what felt like a lecture instead of weaving it organically into the story. Also, was the author given a deal for product placement? The brand names of nearly everything the family used was included. Yogurt, Yoplate, Cheese, Cabo, Coffee, Dunkin' Donuts, Coffee Pot, Mr. Coffee, Cookies, Tates, Purse, Vera Bradley, Hair Dryer, Dyson, Doll Baby, Bitty Baby, Countertops, Corian, etc. Have I annoyed you yet? No mundane detail was too minor to include on every page, and I should have DNF'd the book when I had to read pages of one of the characters putting groceries away, individually, separated by a few paragraphs of boring blah, blah, blah. Jason sets the groceries on the counter, blah, blah, blah. Jason unpacks eggs, big oranges, not little ones, big ones, very important detail, and romaine lettuce, and puts them in the fridge, blah, blah, blah. Jason put a block of cheese and turkey into the fridge, blah, blah, blah. Jason puts away apples and yogurt, blah, blah, blah. Jason puts the grapes away, blah, blah, blah. Jason picks up the 2% milk and places it on the shelf in the refrigerator. I am not exaggerating but I spared you the brand names and the boring blah, 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 separating all this excitement. The first half of the book focuses on how perfect St. Jason's family is, and there are lots and lots and lots of thoughts. Lots of thoughts. The characters were stereotypical and perfect, and then bam, at 50%, The book turns into an action movie. Jason figures out the FBI can't protect them, so St. Jason turns into Superman and does what he must do to protect his family. The crazy twists and turns weren't supposed to be funny, but they made me chuckle and my eyes roll. I can set aside implausibility if the story is fun and compelling. Sorry to say, this book was not that story. Perhaps readers who enjoy action-packed books and are able to set aside implausibility would like this better than I did. There are certainly enough positive reviews to read an alternate opinion. Mary Alice and I suffered through this one together, and as she said in her excellent review, it was a race to the end, so we could move on. So there is our 2.5 star review from user Jan B. So why did I decide to subject myself to this reading experience even after knowing what it was going to be like, even after this very long warning? I just wanted to see how bad this book could get. And as it turns out, That may have been a question that I did not want to know the answer to. 
All right. So as the review mentioned, probably the worst part of this thriller, and I think that this is true for most bad thrillers, but the worst part of this thriller is definitely the plot. And before I get into recapping the plot, I do want to have a quick discussion about plots and more specifically, thriller plots. When we start reading a book, any book, our expectations for the plot depend a lot on genre and genre expectations. What we're willing to accept from a book depends a lot on what genre we're reading. Most readers of hard-boiled detective novels, for example, are not going to be happy about a portal to a secret world of fairies being suddenly introduced halfway through the book, and most contemporary romance readers would not be too excited if you suddenly teleported the characters into the future 2,000 years from now when everyone is living on spaceships and exploring distant galaxies. So there are definitely constraints when you're working within a specific genre, but, but there are also certain freedoms that working within specific genres give you as well. Most romance readers, for example, like having a little bit of interpersonal drama in their stories, a little bit of soap opera-esque angst that readers of other genres these days don't really tolerate. Romance readers love dramatic declarations of love and groveling for forgiveness and long chapters of pining and over-emotional fight scenes, right? Similarly, readers of thrillers don't necessarily require plots that are sensible and carefully thought through. It can definitely be a plus, but people read thrillers mostly because they want to be entertained. And if the plot is cheesy and dramatic and the twists don't really make sense, that can totally work as long as your readers are invested in the story and enjoy the ride. Like our reviewer Jan B said, readers of thrillers are not necessarily bothered by implausibility up to a certain point. Unfortunately, what happened to the Bennets commits the cardinal sin of not being fun enough to excuse its incredibly convoluted and stupid plot. And when I say stupid, I mean stupid to the point of not being fun anymore. There are so many, so many plot contrivances and miraculous coincidences and circumstances that require so much suspension of disbelief that it is impossible to actually be invested in what's happening. I'm about to tell you 
what happens in this book, let me regale you with the utter stupidity of this plot. Okay, so we open with a classic all-American family of four driving home on a pleasant summer evening. Jason is the dad, Lucinda is the mom, and their two kids are big sister Allison and little brother Ethan. They also have a dog named Mooney because, again, we are dealing with a good, old-fashioned, all-American family. Almost immediately, the family gets carjacked by two men who we later learn are members of a drug trafficking gang, and the names of these two men are Milo and Junior. The carjacking is unsuccessful, and in the process, both Allison, the daughter, and Junior, Milo's fellow gang member, are murdered by Milo. And we're off with a bang, literally. The Bennetts manage to get Allison to the hospital, but she dies shortly after they get there, and when the remaining Bennetts are finally able to get home, they're immediately met by the FBI. And the FBI tells the family that they need to go into witness protection right now, or the gang are going to come after them and kill them because they think that Jason killed Junior. Because why would Milo kill Junior when they're both members of the same gang, right? And Junior was called Junior because he was the son and heir of the gang's leader, George Veria, which is why his death was such a big deal. So there is already a lot going on. Drug trafficking, gang members, carjacking, murder, and now this ordinary all-American family is going to have to go into witness protection. The Bennets are taken to their brand new house that very same night, and they meet Dom and Wiki, the FBI agents who are going to be looking after them. The family is kind of worried about this new situation, kind of stressed out about these gang members, but the good news is that the FBI agents are very nice, very protective, and Dom is like, I'll protect you all my life. Very impressive work ethic. I'm totally sure that FBI agents go around saying that to random civilians all the time. The next morning, it turns out that entering the witness protection program was definitely the right decision because the gang burns down the Bennett's house and also Jason's office And they also break into Lucinda's workplace. You get the idea. These are very, very vindictive gang members. From the moment they're in the hospital, Jason is very, very focused on revenge, on catching the guy who shot Allison, Milo. And that desire only escalates 
when they enter the witness protection program. Jason keeps asking the FBI agents about what progress has the FBI made on catching Milo, why isn't he in jail yet, etc., etc. But very soon after they enter the program, Dom tells Jason that Milo has somehow escaped. He has somehow crossed the border into Mexico and therefore is basically out of the FBI's reach. Makes total sense, you know? Like, it's not like the U.S. has an extradition treaty with Mexico or something. Yeah, you can just escape your crimes by fleeing into Mexico. The other family members, Lucinda and Ethan, are not doing well at all. They're grieving Allison and they're super worried about the friends and family they've left behind because their friends and family don't have the FBI's protection. Because again, this is just such a vindictive gang. They're looking up Lucinda's Facebook connections and breaking into nursing homes. They're a revenge machine. And so Lucinda and Ethan are like, we can't live this way. We want out of witness protection. Because, you know, the best way to protect your friends and family is to go back home and put a target on their backs by constantly interacting with them. It's, it's just logic, you know? That's, that's very logical. Jason, meanwhile, is really, really upset about the whole Milo escaping to Mexico thing. And he is very focused on browsing the internet to find out as much as he can about Milo, Jr., and the rest of the gang. By the way, the gang is called the George Varia Organization because it is, you know, run by George Varia. Very cool gang name. 10 out of 10 on creativity. Jason also spends a lot of time questioning Dom and Wiki, the FBI agents, and pressuring them to ask their co-workers for information. Really exciting stuff here. Web surfing and talking to people. I can definitely see why this is called a thriller. One day, while Jason is doing his daily web surfing, he discovers that this guy named Brian, who calls himself a citizen detective, is quote-unquote investigating the disappearance of the Bennett family. He's convinced that Jason killed Lucinda, Ethan, and Allison and is on the run. Brian has his own website where he posts his theories and also publishes so-called podcast episodes where he interviews people connected to the Bennett family, such as Jason's co-workers and Lucinda's friends. Now, I do want to talk about this subplot for a moment because, honestly, it kind of confuses me. I think that Brian is supposed to be an avatar for the kind of people you find in the true crime community, especially the part where he's posting theories about what happened, because that is pretty standard true crime community type behavior. 
And I do imagine that if a family went missing, particularly a white family, a white all-American family, people would definitely suspect the dad, you know, a la Chris Watts, right? But the part where he's being all citizen detective and going around talking to people is definitely weird. I mean, people in the true crime community are often called armchair detectives because, you know, all they mostly do is sit around theorizing. I don't think that there's really a precedent for people in the true crime community to go around interviewing people connected to the case because a generally speaking if people connected to the case were willing to talk to somebody it would probably be a media outlet and not some guy with a website and b the reason for that is because especially in the internet age it's unfortunately really common for people connected to true crime cases to be harassed en masse by random internet people and therefore it's much much more likely that those people would just shut down all of their social media and refuse to talk to anyone period much less again some guy with a website also and i know that i am being nitpicky here because you know i run this podcast and also my my movies podcast but it really 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 bugs me that the interviews brian uploads are referred to as podcasts at most they're like audio files or maybe recorded live streams because he doesn't do any editing he just tapes the interviews and then uploads them without even any context To me, podcasts have some minimal level of storytelling or scripting, particularly when you're doing true crime, right? Even when you're one guy with a microphone, I mean, maybe especially if you're one guy with a microphone, you're going to ham it up, make it sound dramatic, and you're probably going to end up on the opposite end of the scale where you have too much filler in the episode. At the minimum, I imagine that you would have like an intro for each episode where you explain the case, you recap your investigation up to that point, and you explain what's going to happen in that week's episode. Also, how is it a podcast if it doesn't even have an RSS feed? Again, At that point, it's basically just a guy uploading audio files to his website, which is fine, but it's not a podcast. Okay, tangent over. I kind of understand what the author was going for with the character of Brian the Citizen Detective, but to me, it feels unrealistic and kind of misses the point. Because I thought that this character would be used to kind of indict the true crime community a bit and show how random people meddling can go seriously wrong. But if anything, Brian comes out of the story as kind of a hero. And I really, really don't like that. 
particularly within the broader context of the themes of this book. But we will get into that once we have recapped the plot and talked about the characters and have gotten into our discussion of the book and its themes. But that's going to be at the end of the episode. So hold on to that thought. Brian, the citizen detective, and the significance thematically of his character. Anyway, the point is, Jason finds Brian's website and guess what happens? You will never guess where this particular subplot is going. Brian interviews Lucinda's best friend and it turns out that Lucinda was having an affair. The perfect mother of this perfect all-American family turns out to have not been quite so perfect. Jason confronts her about this. Lucinda's like, blah, blah, blah. It didn't mean anything, blah, blah, blah. I was just feeling neglected. So really, it was all your fault. You know, basically stuff you've already heard if you've ever been cheated on. Really, really nailing the cheater's excuse playbook here. Okay, but here is the juicy bit, right? It turns out that the guy Lucinda was cheating with was named Paul Hart. Who is Paul Hart, you may ask? Well, earlier when Jason was doing his internet sleuthing, he uncovered that Paul Hart is the go-to lawyer to get off the guy's in the George Varia organization whenever they're called by the police. And this includes Milo, who killed Allison. So Jason thinks that Paul basically sicked Milo onto the Bennett family to kill Jason and get him out of the way so that he and Lucinda could be together. But Allison was the one who was killed by accident. So as it turns out, the murder was not a coincidence at all. It was a premeditated crime and the actual person responsible for the murder was Paul Hart. Jason decides to go to the FBI with this information, but before he can do that, he oversees this random FBI person who is not either Dom or Wiki, just a random FBI agent who happens to be there for some contrived reason I no longer remember. But guess what? Jason sees this guy outside through the glass and lip reads what he's saying because it was established pretty much at the beginning of the book that Jason can lip read because of his job as a court reporter. And guess what this random FBI agent just happens to be saying as Jason is looking out the window. He happens to be saying that Milo is actually working for the FBI. So that means Milo has not escaped to Mexico at all. He's still in the United States, and the FBI lied 
because this random FBI agent just happened to need to disclose this incredibly sensitive information with an eyeshot of the house the Bennets are staying in just as Jason happened to be walking by. A truly beautiful set of coincidences. You just, you just have to admire it, you know? You just have to step back and say, wow, what a, what a work of art. And it's at this point that Jason decides that the FBI aren't actually on his side and that in order to get revenge for Allison's death and get his family out of witness protection, his only option is to find George Varia, the gang leader, and say to him, hey, by the way, your guy Milo, he's working for the FBI, and also he was the one who killed your son, Junior. Yes, let me voluntarily search out the gang leader who burned down my house in place of business because he thinks I killed his son. That will definitely go well. That is definitely the only option available to me at this time. So that's the end of part one. Part two, Jason escapes from the house. He steals a car and he drives away wearing a baseball cap and sunglasses. The ultimate disguise for anyone on the run. It absolutely makes you unrecognizable. It's like taking off your glasses and letting your hair down and then you know suddenly you're the hottest girl ever you know what i mean totally totally things that work in real life oh and you know i bet you can also fight off a group of bad guys by taking them out one by one while the others just kind of hang back politely watching you because you know bad guys are just polite that way yeah, yeah, that, that all makes sense, right? <laughs> okay, Jason finds Junior's funeral and he kind of hangs around the graveyard spying on the funeral and he sees George Varia for the first time. Milo and Paul Hart are also there, of course, and Paul is with this woman who Jason immediately thinks is too young to be his wife. So he's like, that must be his new mistress, which is weird. I mean, older men marry younger women all the time, right? Like, isn't that the number one cliche about midlife crises? You divorce your wife and marry a much younger woman? But, you know, it turns out that Jason is right because Jason is right about everything. But honestly, I, I still don't get, like, why that's supposed to just make sense. Anyway, so Jason is hanging around the graveyard watching the funeral and he's making small talk with this old guy who is there to visit his wife's grave. And then suddenly, the old guy says, Hey, Jason you better be careful, or something to that effect. And Jason instantly hightails it out of there because he realizes that the old guy is actually an FBI agent. 
this doesn't make any sense because why would the FBI agent blow his cover for no reason and tip Jason off to the fact that he recognizes him again for no reason? Why would he just not maneuver Jason to a quiet place and apprehend him? It would kind of make sense if the FBI agent had some motive for being on Jason's side, like this was an agent that Jason had previously met and connected with or something, but that's not the case. This guy is just some random FBI agent who is apparently just really, really bad at his job. Anyway, Jason gets to his car and he starts to follow the funeral procession so we can see where George Varia is going. Because remember, his objective is to corner the gang leader and tell him about Milo. Unfortunately for Jason, he gets into a car chase with a mysterious car that's trying to like crash him. It's not the FBI agent. It's also not someone from the gang because the gang does not realize that Jason is at the funeral. We never find out who it is, but in the process of the car chase, Jason ends up in this random field and has completely lost track of the gang. So now, Jason's new plan is to go to the funeral house, and once he gets there, he pretends to be a service worker and steals the cards that came with the funerals, sorry, that came with the flowers, the funerals that came for the funeral. That makes sense. Oh, and also, he shaves his head to make himself less recognizable. By the way, if you're wearing a hat and someone can still recognize you, I'm not really sure that shaving your head helps all that much. Because if you're wearing a hat anyway, you don't look that different regardless of whether or not you have hair, right? Anyway, whatever. Jason is the master of superficial disguises that he learned from cheesy Hollywood movies that are still better than this book. Because at least those have like cool special effects, you know what I mean? Like this book is just... <laughs> This book is just something else. Once Jason gets his hands on the cards, oh, by the way, the significance of the cards is that they have names on them, like saying these flowers are from, you know, this person. Jason uses the cards to figure out who is who because the cards were laid out in the same order as the seating arrangements at the funeral. The cards don't have full names because this is a gangster funeral, and so Jason only knows George Varia, Paul Hart, Milo, and Paul Hart's girlfriend. Since he can't track down George, Paul, or Milo, because how would you track down a lawyer working for an established law firm? So mysterious. Anyway, he decides to track down Paul Hart's girlfriend, and he does this by browsing the web on his flip phone. Sounds fun. By the way, this is a super minor complaint, but I do need to talk. I do need to talk about the flip phone for a moment. Humor me, okay? It is explicitly stated in the text that Jason's flip phone is a track phone. And it's kind of implied that A, all track phones are flip phones, and B, flip 
phones are safer because they are harder to track. This makes no sense on either level. One, you can just go to trackphone.com and see that they do sell smartphones. They even sell iPhones, okay? Even if you just walk into Walmart and buy a track phone, the odds are that it's going to be a smartphone because newsflash, it's actually really hard to buy a flip phone these days because most people are not interested in buying a flip phone. In my experience, even if you're just walking into Walmart to buy a track phone, you're going to really, really have to go out of your way to buy a flip phone. Okay, but even if you manage to get a flip phone from track phone, right? Most flip phones these days are actually just smartphones in disguise. They have most of the same capabilities. It's just a million more times annoying to use a flip phone because of the keyboard and also everything just loads really slowly. So it's not necessarily going to be tracking you any less than a flat screen smartphone. Also, the entire point of track phone is that you can buy a phone and a phone card and you don't even have to register your name or address. So even if the phone is broadcasting your location, it doesn't matter because the FBI doesn't know that that phone belongs to you. Just get a track phone smartphone and stop pretending that it has to be a flip phone because it doesn't. The only thing getting a flip phone accomplishes is making everything harder. Seriously, like try browsing the web on a flip phone as much as Jason does in this book and you would not get anything done because it would be really annoying and take forever. The events in this book would be over by the time you loaded even half of the web pages Jason loads on his tiny little flip phone. Anyway, sorry about the tangent. I just get really annoyed when people misrepresent things I actually know something about, particularly when in this modern day and age, they pretend that all burner phones have to be flip phones. It's just kind of a pet peeve of mine. But, you know, everyone has had that experience with books they've read, right? Where you're like, that is not how this works. And I know that. And, you know, I can't complain too much, I guess, because people are probably going to say the exact same thing about my books. So let's get back to Jason. He tracks down Paul Hart's girlfriend, who is named Contessa, on his flip phone and discovers that she works at the same law firm as Paul Hart. She's like an assistant or a paralegal or something like that which is incredibly unethical, but Paul Hart also represents gang members for a living, so moving on. Jason manages to find Contessa's apartment address, and he goes to her apartment only to find that she's been horrifically murdered. Wow, I definitely didn't see that one coming. Murdering beautiful young women whose only story purpose is their sex appeal. What a unique storytelling device. Jason is kind of lost on what to do at this point, except no, he isn't because he is the main character. He decides to show up to this building where they are holding a political fundraiser for this politician that Paul Hart supports. 
Jason obviously can't get into the fundraiser because he doesn't have a ticket. I kind of expected him to try to sneak in, but he doesn't for plot reasons that we will get to in just a moment. Instead of trying to sneak in, Jason decides to camp outside the building and wait for Paul Hart to come out. And I mean, I can't really fault him. It, it is more sensible than trying to sneak in. He waits and he waits. Paul Hart finally comes out of the building and then BAM! Immediately, a car comes out of nowhere and Paul Hart gets run over! Just like that, the guy who had an affair with Lucinda and engineered Allison's death is also dead. Immediately after the hit and run occurs, someone's like, Jason? And he instantly hightails it out of there. Man, isn't it incredible how he manages to somehow always, always, always be in the right place at the right time? Every time something important happens, he's just there. Imagine, imagine having that kind of luck. So now, Paul Hart's girlfriend is dead. Paul Hart is dead. And Jason can't get to Milo. So he has no choice but to track down George Varia. After a lot of convoluted nonsense, Jason figures out that he needs to go to this rural small town. And when he gets there, they're apparently doing drug trades on every street corner, which is more interesting than any small town I've ever been to. Most rural small towns I've been to don't even have that many street corners. Jason drives around for a bit, watching the drug deals happen, and then suddenly he spots one of the gang's bigwigs whose name is Phil. Jason recognizes him from the funeral, and it's really amazing how he's able to literally remember everyone at the funeral. I'm not even being sarcastic here, actually. I have face blindness, and I find it really impressive. Anyway, Jason goes up to Phil and he's like, take me to George. So Phil takes Jason to this remote barn to meet George. And when they get there, guess who shows up? Not George, it's Milo. Milo is back and better than ever. Jason's like, you're an FBI informant. Phil is like, wait, really? And Milo takes out a gun and shoots Phil. Phil, and also an unseen guy whom Jason assumes is a guard standing watch. Jason runs out of the barn. Milo chases after him, shooting, but after flawlessly killing two guys, he suddenly has endless bullets, but also the accuracy of a stormtrooper, so Jason is able to get into his car and drive away. There's an exciting car chase sequence where Milo keeps shooting at Jason and his car. See what I mean about endless bullets? Because he's not taking any time to reload. But instead of hitting Jason, Milo ends up killing this random truck driver. And Jason is able to get away because otherwise there would be no more story. And we're just getting started on the truly crazy stuff. Jason ends up at this random diner, and guess what happens? Guess. Or maybe don't bother because you're, you're not going to be able to guess. He's sitting there listening to the people talking around him at this diner when he realizes 
that he's sitting right next to these guys who work for the same truck company that the murdered truck driver worked for. So now the fleet associated with this truck driving company is determined to track Milo down and enact some good old-fashioned vigilante justice. You heard it here first. Truck drivers are basically modern-day cowboys. And Jason also learns that the other guy who got killed in the barn was not, in fact, a guard. Guess who it was? It was Brian, the citizen detective. In case you are wondering how Brian, the internet rando, ended up at a gang meeting in a rural barn in the middle of nowhere, in in case you're kind of curious about that, do you remember how Jason witnessed the hit and run that killed Paul Hart? And what caused him to flee the scene was someone recognizing him and saying, Jason? Essentially, the person who recognized Jason was a co-worker. And get this, Brian just happened to also be at the scene of the hit and run. He overheard the co-worker recognize Jason and immediately interviewed the co-worker for his so-called podcast. Then, Brian somehow managed to follow Jason all the way to the gang meeting, despite, despite wasting a bunch of time interviewing the co-worker, and despite the fact that he was following Jason around remote rural roads at night. Here's the thing, right, about driving in remote rural areas especially at night, if someone is following you, you are going to notice because not many cars drive around rural remote roads at night. And also, nobody has any reason to be following you for extended periods of time. Rural roads are usually one or two lane dark roads and you are absolutely going to notice a car with its headlights on following you. Anyway, rip Brian the citizen detective. This is why you are better off being an armchair detective. You know, less risk of somehow ending up at a gang meeting that turns into a shootout. Okay, let's recap. Paul Hart's girlfriend is dead. Paul Hart is dead. Phil is dead. Brian the citizen detective is dead. George is clearly not interested in meeting up. End of the road, right? Not far, fearless, all-American hero. Jason gets a call from George, and this makes sense somehow for reasons that I don't remember. And this time, Jason gets driven to another meeting place. Good news, George shows up. Bad news, George thinks Jason killed his son. So bad news, George immediately starts beating Jason to death. Good news! Turns out George is terminally ill and has to pause in the middle of beating Jason to death. Instead of the other gang members rushing in to finish Jason off, Jason manages to gasp out that it was Milo who killed Junior. George reconsiders the whole beating Jason to death thing in case Jason is right. They have a little heart to heart and hash out what they each know and how it fits together. 
George is like, no way Paul Hart targeted your family because he was in love with Lucinda. All he cared about was himself. And, I mean, he did already have a whole new girlfriend, so not really a surprise. What they figure out is that the carjacking must be connected to the politician Paul Hart supported. The politician has a secret that only Jason knows. But the only connection between Jason and the politician is that both of them worked at Gitmo, which is the base at Guantanamo Bay where the U.S. government interrogated terrorist suspects after 9-11. The politician was in the military and Jason was a court reporter for the CIA. Great. Okay, they figured it out. Bad news. George is planning to kill Jason anyway for security reasons because Jason knows too much. Good news! Jason convinces George not to kill him for really no other reason than Jason is like, don't kill me. And George is like, got it, you can go. Bad news! Jason leaves and immediately tries to find his Gitmo era documents in his cloud backups only to discover that the entire folder labeled Gitmo has been deleted. Shocked, I tell you, shocked. With Jason's office burned down, physical copies have also disappeared. Jason is kind of stumped, so he does some internet sleuthing on this politician because he is a flip phone internet master. And he discovers that the politician has been accused of being involved in the horrific torture of a terrorist suspect who was not actually a terrorist, but who was tortured so badly that he died. The senator has been like, no, 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 no. I was there, but I was sick at that time. I couldn't have been involved in the whole torturing an innocent person to death thing. But the whole torture accusation happened on Jason's birthday. And guess what Jason finds? In his favorites folder, he finds a picture of the birthday that he celebrated at Gitmo. And guess who is in the photo? The politician. So that's proof that the politician was lying and was actually involved in torturing the suspect. Great. There we go. We figured the whole thing out. Milo wanted to kill Jason because Paul Hart told him to. Paul Hart wanted to kill Jason because the politician told him to. And the politician wanted to kill Jason because of a photo that Jason didn't remember existed that held the answer to a controversy Jason didn't even know about. Makes a lot of sense if you think about it. At this point, Jason decides that he's going to go back to his family and tell the FBI. Okay, we have already established that the FBI are no help and are in fact shielding Milo, who is their informant. Why would you not make sure that Milo is, you know, taken care of? But, you know, whatever. Jason gets back and it's actually a good thing he decided to go back because Lucinda and Ethan have gone missing and so has one of the FBI agents, Dom. 
The other agent, Wiki, is still there, and he says that Milo got the three of them and is holding them hostage. So Wiki is going to take Jason to a special team of FBI agents who are going to negotiate to get Lucinda, Ethan, and Dom back because taking Jason along to a hostage situation totally makes sense. Jason is not thinking, so he gets in the car with Wiki, and somewhere along the way, Jason is finally like, wait, 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 this doesn't make any sense. So he grabs the steering wheel, drives them into a swamp, and shoots Wiki. Then Jason drives away in the car, and he's off to find his family. He encounters a traffic jam and thinks that, you know, it's just a wreck, which, you know, is a reasonable assumption. But then he turns on the radio and discovers that actually it's a roadblock and the police are searching cars in order to find him. Wiki is dead and the police think Jason did it. Jason is immediately like, Milo must have killed Wiki and tipped the police off. But that doesn't make any sense. One, it's really likely that Jason killed Wiki because he shot the guy and just left him there. Like, it's very likely that Wiki just bled out and died. Two, how would Milo know that this situation even happened? It's never explained because it doesn't make sense. So now Jason is in a roadblock that he needs to get out of. His solution is to throw himself on the mercy of this random truck driver who happens to work for the same company as the truck driver who got killed by Milo. Okay, imagine this. You are a truck driver. You're just doing your job. And all of a sudden, this guy who is under suspicion of murder for his entire family and also an FBI agent shows up and starts spouting crazy conspiracy theories about gang members orchestrating everything and going after him. What do you do in this situation? Apparently... You agree to help him for no other reason than that he is a conventionally attractive white man because conventionally attractive white men are never serial killers and it's totally safe to invite them into your truck and help them escape from the police. Ted Bundy who? Anyway, this random truck driver helps him pass the roadblock, gives him different clothes, and even feeds him because she has no survival instincts. I have no idea how she has managed to make it to old age as a woman. Jason somehow figures out that Dom took Ethan and Lucinda into hiding, and he also figures out where... Dom took Lucinda and Ethan based on personal information that Dom told him earlier in the book, which is really, really, really stupid because if Dom trusted random guy Jason enough to tell him enough personal information to track him down, he would have trusted his coworker a lot more. 
the obvious solution is you know drive to a random motel in the middle of nowhere because how could anyone track you there but apparently being smart is not a requirement for fbi agents because jason finds dom in less than an hour i think and it turns out that dom did take lucinda and ethan into hiding with him dom recruits some friends and family to help him out and together jason dom and dom's family and friends decide to lure milo out there's a shootout george and his gang show up and the big climax is where george and milo kill each other and that's that jason is acquitted because he uncovered the conspiracy to cover up the politician's past and now that everyone is dead he and his family can leave witness protection and go home and live their lives the end talk about a stupid plot it relies almost entirely on insanely convenient coincidences action movie cliches so overdone that they don't even use them in mission impossible movies anymore and a fundamental premise so flawed that it makes no sense but the worst part for me is that for a plot that is so ridiculous the book isn't even fun to read i can excuse a lot of things in thrillers but I cannot excuse a reading experience that is as bad as the one I had trying to read this book. Putting aside the plot, the first problem, and probably the fundamental problem, is the book's structure. This book is divided into two parts, and the two parts are a combined total of 674 ebook pages. To put that into perspective, most books are somewhere between 400 to 500 ebook pages, although obviously the genre also has a big influence on how long the book is. But in my experience, for me to enjoy a book that is substantially over 500 ebook pages, it has to earn that page count. And this book absolutely did not. The first part of this book is about half the page count, as you would expect, and it's so boring. The first part of this book is everything up to Jason's decision to not trust the FBI and take matters into his own hands. So the vast majority of the first part is just the family entering the witness protection program and their life within the program. Plot-wise, it's just Jason searching the internet and lucinda and ethan spending most of the day in bed crying unlike jason lucinda and ethan have essentially nothing to do they're directionless depressed and have nothing to do now that they no longer have school work or a social life and i don't want to sound heartless or anything here and i get that in real life the situation would actually be really hard allison is dead your entire life just got taken away and your home and business burned down. That is definitely a lot to process. But the problem is that this is supposed to be a thriller and it just doesn't work. Could it work? Are there ways that it could work? Yes, obviously. 
if we had compelling characters, an interesting perspective on grief, or some way that the external plot was progressing beyond Jason browsing the internet and talking to people, then it could definitely work. Unfortunately, as it stands, I'm as bored as the characters are. I'm just waiting for something to happen, and I'm annoyed by how much we're focusing on the characters and their emotions. And given that I'm a person who primarily enjoys character-driven stories, that's quite the accomplishment. Congratulations! You created circa 300 pages of character-driven story that I actually could not engage with on any level. There was no moment of emotional resonance, no moment where I actually felt connected to the characters and their pain. But that's okay. This is a thriller. I'm here for the thrills. Just give me something interesting or entertaining. And if you think that's what I got in the second half of the book, you are unfortunately wrong. The second half of the book, which was most of the plot that we just discussed, kind of sounds like it could be mindless fun to read because there is just so much crazy nonsensical stuff going on. Unfortunately, as much fun as it was to discuss and make fun of, it's not actually fun to read. I can only handle so much of everything miraculously working out for Jason. I can handle only so much of miraculous coincidences. I can only handle so much of asking, wait, how does that make any sense? I can only handle so much of that before I start getting too annoyed to actually enjoy the story. I like crazy plots sometimes, but I don't like plots that are so stupid there is no way I can suspend my disbelief for even a chapter. Also, Thrillers are not fun to read when there's no risk. The vast majority of the second half is Jason doing action hero stuff on his own while his family is safe at home. And that's just not interesting to me because if something bad happens to him, then it's the end of the story. Therefore, nothing bad can happen to him and there's no tension. Ethan and Lucinda are in danger technically towards the very end of the book when they go missing. But Jason finds them in like two chapters and after that they're safe again and there's no real doubt that they were safe with Dom. So there's no risk, no thrills. It's just not possible to engage with on an emotional level. And when the plot is too stupid to enjoy and you aren't worried about the characters, then what is there left to enjoy? Nothing, except checking how many pages are left until you're finally free of this absolute nonsense and can rant about it on your podcast. Alright, so the structure of the book is problem number one. Now let's talk about major problem number two, the characters. As I said just a moment ago, the first half of the book is supposed to be character driven, but it's more character stalled. Instead of driving forward the story, the characters are bringing the story to a grinding halt. And in particular, I want to highlight three characters that I feel especially present problems when it comes to creating an engaging story. 
The first character that I want to highlight is Allison, the daughter who's killed in the opening chapter. In many ways, she's probably the most pivotal person in the entire book. Her death is the catalyst for all of the subsequent events, and grief over losing her consumes the thoughts of her entire family for the entirety of the book. There isn't a single chapter that doesn't have some mention of or allusion to Allison. But as a character, I feel like she leaves a lot to be desired. Allison is 15 years old, so she's just started high school, and she's also a star athlete. Sports are basically her entire life. She's extroverted and sunny, and everyone around her loves her. Now, you may already be seeing the problem here. This sounds like the kind of generic description that people give for victims of true crime or the kind of sanitized image that people incorporate into funeral speeches. It doesn't sound like the description of a real person being grieved by their family. And if you think that I am purposefully not giving her much depth, here are the two most in-depth quotes that I could find regarding Allison in this book. Here's quote one. She was everything I could have asked for in a daughter. Strong, smart, funny, bold, more blunt than tactful more sensitive than she looked. My father always said she was like a draft horse that way. And here's quote two. The coffee table was cluttered with bottles of holy, holy taco nail polish, tubes of watermelon chapstick, a black ponytail elastic, and a tub of peppermint mentos gum, which we loved so much we called her gum pig. And yes, I did notice that both descriptions of her somehow involve animals. You know, it's a choice. And there are some attempts to make her seem more like a real teenager by sprinkling in the cringiest, most hello fellow kids dialogue that you can imagine. Here are some examples. I remembered we bought a desk for Allison. The mistake of rookie parents. Dad... Please take this stupid desk out of my room. You're supposed to do your homework there. Develop good study habits. Okay, boomer. I remembered when Lucinda had told her we used to send prints to be developed. Mom, did you have a horse and buggy too? Our vet had given us the cremains in small cedar boxes, and Ethan put them in his bedroom, which Allison had teased him about. Bro, you're the crypt keeper. Okay, first of all, what kid does not want a desk in their room? Like, where else are you supposed to do your homework? The living room? The kitchen? Places where your family can bug you all the time? How about no? Also, teenagers famously want their own space. Also, also, desks are not just for studying. I mean, you know, it's nice to have somewhere to put your laptop, do art if you're into that, you know, so on and so forth. I just found that moment incredibly unrealistic where Allison's like, why'd you get me a desk? I'm like, pretty much every kid I've ever known had a desk in their room. I mean, even I had a desk, you know? 
Okay. Additionally, OK Boomer isn't really used that way. Like, that's not what it means. It's more when people are, when older people are stating, like, outdated ideas and you're like, OK Boomer, you know, something like that. Same goes for Crypt Keeper. People don't joke about being the Crypt Keeper. Like, from what I've seen online, people are like, oh, that person looks like the Crypt Keeper, you know? Like, I don't think it's very nice. I wouldn't say it, but I've certainly seen people use it that way online. The joke about the horse and buggy is almost as bad as that boomer comic of the kid at the museum saying, father i cannot click the picture or whatever stupid caption it has like seriously if you're going to go off hello fellow kids on us you could at least make it accurate as it is you make allison feel more like a caricature than a person and that's my core issue with allison she doesn't feel like a person she feels like a plot device There's nothing in either her brief time as a living person or in the backstory included throughout the book that makes me understand her as anything beyond the idealized portrait of a tragic victim. She was the perfect daughter and now she's the perfect victim. There's no nuance to her beyond that. And the reason this bothers me so much is because you could extend similar criticisms to pretty much every woman in the book. Either they're used as plot devices or they're generic character types or both. Allison is the generic perfect daughter and the point of her character is to be a plot device that drives the story. Lucinda is the generic mother figure until she's suddenly a cheating wife whose misdeeds are there to drive the plot. Lucinda's elderly mother who suffers from dementia is the perfect encapsulation in a single character of the vulnerable family and friends that the Bennets are worried about protecting. Lucinda's friends are generic concerned moms and nosy neighbors. The truck driver who helps Jason exists only to, well, help Jason. She comes out of thin air and back to thin air she vanishes when her usefulness expires. Contessa, Paul Hart's girlfriend, is probably the most egregious example of this. She's the generic younger girlfriend trope who exists solely to be fridged, to die off page in order to drive the plot. And the reason I point to this as a gendered problem is because there is some real effort made to bring nuance to the male characters. Dom the FBI agent, George Varia the gang leader, and of course Jason the protagonist are all treated with a respect that isn't afforded to the female characters. And for a book authored by a woman, I find that more than a little sad. As a reminder, just because a book is written by a woman does not mean that we can't take issue with the way that the female characters in those books are presented and developed. Now let's look at Lucinda's character in more detail so that I can discuss more in depth why I have issues with the way female characters are presented and treated in this book. Throughout the first half of the book, the entire point of Lucinda's character seems to be to provide an opposing and clearly emotion-based reaction to every single thing that either Jason or the FBI suggest. 
The men are presented as rational, possessing common sense, knowing that they have to do the right thing even when it's difficult. Lucinda is presented as irrational, over-emotional, fighting over every little thing, even when it's clear that Dom and Wiki are just trying to help. As a reader, you're essentially forced to root against her. You can't help feeling happy when Jason manages to calm her down, as he does every single time, because the story needs to move forward. Lucinda isn't so much a character as she is an annoying obstacle that keeps getting pushed out of the way by the intelligent, calm, reasonable men. Maybe you can start to see why I have some issues with the way women are presented and treated in this book. And in case you think I am exaggerating or blowing things out of proportion, I come armed with so many examples that you are going to be sick of how many examples I have, but I feel like it is necessary in order to drive home just how pervasive and annoying this presentation and treatment of female characters is. Let's set the scene. Allison has been shot and killed. The family comes home from the hospital and they find the FBI waiting for them. They're told that they need to go into witness protection because vindictive gang members are after them. Witness protection obviously means that you need to leave everything and everyone behind and go into hiding. Here is Lucinda's immediate response. Then we're not going, Lucinda shot back. We're totally not, Ethan added, teary. This is where we live. I rose. Gentlemen, we need to talk this over. Know how Lucinda's response is on the same level of emotional reasoning as that of Ethan, who is a little kid. Only Jason's response makes sense as the response of a rational reasoning adult. Alright, but that was, like I said, her gut response. Maybe things get better. The family goes into the kitchen to talk it over, they argue, and finally, this happens. Lucinda shook her head. I don't know what to do. I did. We can't look over our shoulder for the rest of our lives. We can't, honey. It's not safe to stay. Of course, the silly, emotional woman wouldn't know what to do. She needs her big, strong husband to figure out that maybe it's not reasonable or safe to stick around when gang members are after you. You know, a woman just couldn't figure that out on her own. As we already know, they do end up going into witness protection, and once they get to their new house, they're informed that they won't be allowed to go to Allison's funeral because it might be targeted by the gang. I mean, fair enough. These are the same people who burned down their house and place of work and are definitely out to kill the Bennets. It seems kind of reasonable that you wouldn't want to go to a place where said gang members are expecting you to show up. But we already know that that's not going to be Lucinda's response. Here's what she says. Whatever. I'm telling you now, you are not keeping me from my daughter's funeral. If you try, I'll contact the hospital myself, get my daughter's body, and arrange for her burial. Yeah, that sounds smart. Let's just ignore the gang members who are after us. The FBI agents point out that maybe she might want to reconsider. Lucinda shook her head. But this is our daughter. 
I'm willing to take a risk to bury her. Risking your life? Ethan's? You're exaggerating, Lucinda shot back. Why would I? To get us to do what you want. Yes, they do want you to do what they want you to do. Namely, they want you to stay safe, which is why they are using U.S. taxpayer dollars to give you and your family an entirely new life. Also, exaggerating? You think that the FBI warning you to stay safe when there are murderous, drug-trafficking gang members after you is exaggerating? I guess Jason was the only one who watched those cheesy Hollywood thrillers. You know, Lucinda was probably off watching Hallmark movies or, you know, something else more feminine because gender roles, am I right? Lucinda is finally convinced that maybe going to the funeral is a bad idea. So her next complaint is about how she can't contact her friends. I know, but can you imagine how Melissa is feeling? We always walk on Saturday morning. She's probably texting me and calling. I had no reply. Melissa was my wife's best friend after Allison. I just wish we could let her know. That would defeat the purpose. Would it? She wouldn't tell anybody. And what about the other moms? We were planning for the semifinals. Who brings what? All that. They'll be calling too. We don't have any choice. Yeah, I know that my daughter just got violently murdered. And I'll be forced to hide along with the rest of my family probably for the rest of my life. But you know what's actually bothering me right now? Missed calls over planning the varsity soccer semifinals. Also, let me just call my friend real quick and tell her about this whole witness protection thing. You know, the same friend who is constantly on Facebook and also told a complete internet stranger on tape that I was having an affair that even my husband didn't know about. Yeah, I'm sure she won't tell anybody. Amazing intellect here. Sound reasoning as far as the eye can see. And even when Lucinda is right about something, the narrative goes out of its way to present her in the most annoying, unreasonable way possible. For example, there's this part where Lucinda is worried about her mother, who is in a nursing home because of her dementia. Which I mean, fair enough to be worried about her, but here is how that conversation goes. Jason, Lucinda, there's something you need to understand. Our job is to protect you and your family. Your property isn't our charge. Something else we weren't told, Lucinda interrupted. But what about my mother? What if they do something to her? She's a person, not property. Will you protect her? Dom hesitated. No, I'm sorry, truly, but extended family is not in the budget. We don't have the manpower. Are you serious? Lucinda raised her voice. You protect my mother or I won't testify to a single thing. I understood her anger. Dom, my mother-in-law is family. Move her here. Then you don't need extra manpower. We can't do that in her condition. I'll take care of her. Lucinda shot back, agitated. I did it before. I can do it again. And what if they figure out who my friends are? All they have to do is look at my Facebook page. Are they going to go after them too? 
Dom put up his hands. Okay, I hear you. I'll share your concerns with my boss. We did not anticipate that they would go this far. You should have, Lucinda snapped. I didn't pile on. I could tell from Dom's expression he felt bad enough. Listen, I promise you, Dom raised the finger, I will defend your lives and Ethan's with my own. You have our word. Wiki nodded, his young face solemn. Mine too. Lucinda fell silent, and so did I. They had just made a vow to take a bullet for us, and I gave their words the weight they deserved. My wife and son were all I had left, all that mattered now. Losing everything clarified my priorities on the spot. If the FBI could keep my family safe, that was all I really needed. My anger ebbed away. I thanked them both. Lucinda said nothing, folding her arms. Note in this exchange how Lucinda is presented versus how Jason is presented and pay particular attention to the language that is used to describe each character. Lucinda interrupts. She's angry. She raises her voice. She shoots back, agitated. She snaps. She folds her arms. She's ungrateful and still upset even after Dom and Wiki's vows to protect the Bennets. In contrast, Jason is described as understanding. He doesn't pile on. He can tell how Dom is feeling. He's giving Dom and Wiki's vows the weight they deserve. His anger ebbs away. He thanks them. Lucinda is being presented to us as emotional, angry, impossible to please. Jason is being presented to us as her foil. He's calm, empathetic, understanding, reasonable, grateful. Even when Lucinda is rightfully upset about her mother being abandoned to the mercy of murderous gangsters, she's never given the grace to be sympathetic to the audience. She's never presented in a way that makes you want to agree with her or care about her feelings. Instead, even when she's right, you're still annoyed with her and you still find her to be annoying and unreasonable even when she isn't. And that's because of the way she's presented to the reader, particularly in contrast to the male characters surrounding her. As you may have picked up on from that passage, there's also this assumed camaraderie among the three men, Jason and the two FBI agents, Dom and Wiki. And what you often end up with is this hostile dynamic where it very much feels like Lucinda is on one side being angry and unreasonable, and the men are on the other side trying to calm her down with their facts and logic trademark. A perfect example of this can be found in this excerpt, where Lucinda is really mad at Jason for talking to Dom behind her back. The context here is that the Bennets can use the internet, but they aren't allowed to log onto social media or other websites that show that you're currently active. And what Jason told Dom was that Lucinda found out that her friends were planning a search party to look for the missing family. Wait, Lucinda said. You didn't tell him I went on Facebook, did you? Yes, but you weren't doing anything wrong. Still, you told him? Lucinda's eyes flared, which meant more disapproval. I had to tell him how I knew. That was between us. You should have discussed it with me. Ethan perked up. Mom, you went on Facebook? Lucinda turned to Ethan. Not on my own account. 
I went on under my interns. Ethan shifted up in bed. Can I go on Insta? No, I answered because Lucinda was giving me a see what you started look. Dom doesn't want us to. Jason, Lucinda interrupted. Is Dom pissed at me now? No, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal to bust me to the FBI? Lucinda constantly feels like Jason isn't on her side. And to be fair, he really isn't. Mostly, he's on the side of whatever guy is around. And if you think I'm exaggerating, consider this excerpt where Lucinda finds out about Brian the Citizen Detective's theory that Jason murdered his family. But this is outrageous! Lucinda read the screen, eyes flaring behind her readers which magnified them. They're calling you a family annihilator! I held her shoulder. It's nothing. Yeah, Lucinda, you're being way too emotional over people suggesting that your husband murdered you and your children. Why can't you be more like Jason, who's being so calm and reasonable about being called a serial killer? Come on, Lucinda. We know it's not a big deal. To drive home just how much Jason isn't supportive of Lucinda, here's an excerpt where she's explicitly mad at Jason for not being on her side. I'll talk to my boss, Dom started to say. A little late, don't you think? We have procedures. And look where they got us. It's bad enough I'm abandoning my mother. Now she's worried sick about me. Dom's expression was grave, and I knew he felt terrible, which frustrated me more. Okay, I said to Lucinda, here's what I think, honey, we can't look back. Why not? Lucinda looked over, shedding my arm. Because it's not about blame, it's about what we do next. Don't take their side, Jason. I'm not. I was aware of Ethan looking from Lucinda to me. We're missing the big picture, playing the blame game. I turned to Dom. This post reveals where my mother-in-law lives. I think that puts her in danger. Did you get surveillance on her yet? Unsure. I made the request this morning. Normally it takes a day or two. Dom gestured to Wiki who slid out his phone and started texting. We'll check. Lucinda's hand flew to her mouth. I didn't even think of that. They could go there and kill her for God's sake. Honey, we will deal with this. We can deal with it. How? My mother's in danger. Lucinda turned to Dom, angry tears in her eyes. You let Milo get away. You let our house burn down. Now my mother has a target on your back because you wouldn't tell Melissa we're okay. And Jason has the audacity to be constantly, and I mean constantly, complaining about how his marriage is falling apart. Yeah, I wonder why. He's like, I'm not taking their side. But here's the thing. I can't help feeling like if it was his mom we were talking about, his reaction would, you know, be less calm down Lucinda and more, why are you guys not doing anything? Because honestly, the worst part for me is the insane double standard that's going on here. From the moment Allison dies, Jason is thirsting for revenge, hell-bent on getting Milo caught. That's presented as natural, noble, nothing to look at here. 
Lucinda's emotional reactions, on the other hand, are constantly presented as aggressive, overblown, lacking in logic and reason, only existing to be dismissed by the more level-headed men around her. The reader is constantly being manipulated by both Jason and the narrative itself to dislike Lucinda, to discount her emotions, to downplay what she's going through. And keep in mind, Lucinda is the only major female character in the entire book. And it's particularly egregious when you contrast that with the figure of ideal American masculinity that is the character of Jason. Jason is the most insufferable protagonist I have come across in a while because he is such a caricature of the type of ideal masculine man that can do no wrong. Personality? Action hero. Flaws? Never heard of them. Everything he does is for his family. Everything he does turns out well. Jason can do no wrong, etc, etc, etc. Reading a book from Jason's point of view is about as fun for me as reading a self-insert fan fiction. Basically, the entire book is about Jason being a big, strong man who saves his family, and that's his entire character. There's no nuance, there's no unique perspective or commentary on masculinity or gender roles. It's just a flat, boring character saving the day and protecting his fragile, helpless wife and children. Honest question, how is it that The Incredibles, a Pixar movie from 2004 aimed at literal children, is more insightful and thoughtful than a book published in 2022 that is aimed at adults. And again, please keep in mind that the entire first half of this book is just the reader being reminded over and over and over again how amazing and incredible Jason is and how completely lost his family would be without him. Let, let me give you a taste of how insufferable Jason is. Let me give you a taste of what it was like to suffer through this reading experience. Because if I had to go through it, then so do you. It's only fair. Here's Jason at the hospital being a big, strong, manly man. I wanted to cry. I wanted to scream. I wanted to wail and howl in disbelief and fury. Lucinda sobbed, tears pouring from her eyes. Ethan cried like a little boy, a sound I didn't know I remembered until now. I knew we could not fall to pieces at the same time. I was daddy. I was the center, and the center had to hold. Because apparently Jason is the only adult in the room. Also, note to adult men, please do not call yourself daddy. Thank you. Here is Jason at the hospital, being reassured by the doctor that he is indeed a big, strong, manly man. That was the proper protocol. You did everything right. You did everything you could have. I knew why the doctor was saying that. I could see it in his knowing eyes and hear it in his gentle tone. He didn't want me to blame myself, but I hadn't asked because I wanted absolution. I would never absolve myself. Ever. Here's Jason viewing his dead daughter's body. 
I rubbed Lucinda's back, but didn't succumb to emotion. I couldn't. Lucinda bent over to hug Allison, crying so hard I worried she would never stop. Emotions are bad, you guys. Big, strong, manly men can't have emotions, even when they're viewing their daughter's corpse. Wow, what a great message for men. Crying is for girls. I bet you never heard that one before. Here's Dom encouraging Jason to be a big, strong, manly man. Not just for his family, but specifically for Lucinda. Meantime, keep a routine. Run. Stay strong. You gotta get them through this. You gotta get Lucinda through this. Because women, they're just so weak, you know? So in need of protection that complete strangers can immediately see that it's the husband who needs to be the strong one. Speaking of which, here's Jason being a big, strong, manly man after Lucinda has a panic attack over the whole situation. Jason, it's too much what we've lost. Allison, our lives, the house, the business, my cameras, my lenses, my jewelry, all of it is gone, gone, gone. And at some point, it's just too big to overcome. You can't overcome it. It's not possible to lose everything and still go on. I'm telling you, I'm spent. I'm done. You just feel that way now, I interrupted. I couldn't let her say those things or think them, even if they were true. And if I'm being real with you, and I'm trying to be real with you, I don't think I can be here. I can't do this. I'm here, honey. I'll do it. I squeezed her shoulder. You can't, Jason. You can't do it for us. You can't go it alone. Nobody can. You can't give me our family back. You can't give me our past back. And I don't know what to do because I can't live in the present, and I sure as hell can't deal with the future. Neither can Ethan. We're falling through the cracks like mom. We're falling. I won't let that happen, I said, stricken. Yeah, that's the solution, Jason. You're not going to let Lucinda struggle with her mental health. That is definitely how that works. But I guess we can't expect Jason to know what it's like to struggle with your mental health after a tragedy. Because here is Jason being the big, strong, manly man and the hero his family needs him to be. I'm not trying to be a hero. I'm trying to solve a problem. I felt the truth of my words as they left my lips. Maybe a hero was just a guy who solved a problem. A regular dad trying to fix things for his family. I fixed the water leak. I fixed the plaster. Mr. Fix-It, writ large. There we go, you guys. Heroes are just dads. You know, since dads are the only ones who ever fix stuff around the house, therefore, only men can be heroes. It was so obvious and I never saw it before. Like, what's wrong with me? Oh, and uh, just in case you need reminding that Jason is nothing more than a cardboard cutout self-insert OC, he is also ridiculously handsome to the point where the random truck driver 
who is helping him escape the police because she has no survival instincts. That person, she gives him a shirt, but only on the condition that she can watch him change. The cringe. Speaking of cringe, there are certain aspects of this book that I can only describe that way. Part of the cringe is stuff like this quote from Brian the Citizen Detective on his quote-unquote podcast. Basically, he's trying to convince Lucinda's best friend that Jason must have murdered his entire family. Brian says, I know that you don't suspect Jason, but let's discuss him. You have to understand, the husband is the first person we look to in cases like this. Anyone who watches Lifetime TV knows that, right? Please keep in mind that Brian is not like 60 years old. He is supposed to be a young guy. Most of Lifetime's audience is famously not young men and honestly not young people at all. It's essentially an edgier version of Hallmark if commentary videos on YouTube are anything to go off of. Also, yes, the husband is, you know, often the killer, but you don't need to go to fiction for that. It's true for many of the real-life true crime cases that I have read about in which one would assume someone like Brian would also have read about. And just like lifetime seriously i know the stereotype is that wine moms or whatever watch lifetime but while i do know people who watch hallmark and i have even watched hallmark long ago i don't know anyone who has watched or ever watched lifetime like it just doesn't feel like a thing that's like a thing anymore you know Anyway, we also get some really, really awkward social commentary that gets shoehorned into the book. My theory is that the author is, despite her butchering of gender roles among her characters and, you know, commentary on gender, anyway... I get the feeling she is trying to be somewhat progressive and, you know, keeping up with social progress and all that. But she does it in a way that is just so obviously shoehorned in as an afterthought. And it ends up being painful to read. For example, consider this quote. Um, The context here is that Brian the Citizen Detective was speculating that Jason was having an affair with another woman and this is Jason's internal response in his you know internal dialogue the sweet young thing could only be my employee Justine Vanderlost who happened to be gay okay what guy like what young guy says sweet young thing like gross it's the kind of thing you would expect a creepy grandpa to say Creepy young men don't sound like that, trust me. But anyway, you can probably see why this seems so forced. Justine is not an actual character in the book. She's not even a side character. She never appears on the page. So it's fine if she's gay. Actually, it works out really well because, you know, you get the clout of writing a gay character without, you know, 
writing a gay character. It's the Disney approach to progressive storytelling. But honestly, what's even worse is the character of Dom. Dom is one of the FBI agents who's protecting the Bennets, if you'll remember, and he is also black, which is fine. Like, it, it is a good thing that she has a major character who is black. Like, that's not my issue, okay? However, the author feels compelled to draw attention to that fact in the cringiest ways possible. For example, there is this very forced exchange where Jason references like a Will Smith quote from a movie and Dom says, Dom smiled, everybody says that. I never know whether to thank Will Smith or hit him. I like Will Smith. All white people do. I sensed I'd stuck my foot in my mouth. I felt momentarily like I didn't know what to say or how to act. I didn't have any close friends who were black, and only one of my employees was black. Dom added, relax. I like Will Smith, too. Yeah, Jason, we can definitely tell that you do not have any friends who are people of color. Oh, but it, it's okay, because he has one gay employee. Gotta meet that diversity quota, you know? Okay, let's move on before I cringe my way out of my skin because, you know, there's a lot more where that came from. And honestly, some of the stuff I didn't include in here might be worse. But honestly, this episode is already way too long and I just do not have the time or energy to discuss this particular topic any further. TLDR, middle-aged white woman tries to be relatable and semi-progressive. It does not go well. The final point I just want to touch on before we wrap things up is that one of the worst parts of reading this book is that the writing is just so bad. You know I try not to go too hard on the writing most of the time. I just... Sometimes I do the thing where I'm like, well, this writing style is not for me. I often try to go into detail on exactly why, so I'm not just, you know, bashing on people. But in general, I do try to, you know, avoid saying, oh, this writing is bad. But in this case, there is just no other way to put it. The writing is just bad. And here is why. The first reason the writing sucks is because the dialogue is chock full of really clunky exposition. Now, if you read fantasy or sci-fi, you know world building and expo dumps often go hand in hand. It's annoying, but at least it's potentially interesting because you get to learn more about this cool made up place and its history. Unfortunately, when it comes to people living in the contemporary United States, exposition via dialogue is unlikely to ever be interesting. That's why it's writing 101 that you never ever write dialogue like, you know, for example, as you know, you're my brother John and you graduated at the top of your class from Harvard. Nobody talks like that and nobody should write like that. Unfortunately, this author didn't seem to get the memo because we get passages like this. By the way, this is Lucinda talking. Her main nurse, Susan, is usually on top of things, 
But Marjorie, who comes on Monday and Wednesday, never gets it. If she doesn't understand my mother, she pretends she doesn't hear it. I knew my wife was right about that too. Bay Horse was a great facility, but it wasn't perfect. My mother-in-law's care was paid for by her inheritance from my late father-in-law, though I have been truly staggered by the cost of assisted living in the memory care wing. Sometimes I think they're mean to her just because she has money. They think her life was easy, but it wasn't. It never has been. She always worked in my father's office. She just didn't get paid. Lucinda, girl, who are you talking to? The only other person in the room with you is Jason. And you guys have been married like 20 years. I'm pretty sure he already knows like your mom's backstory and who her nurses are, you know. There's also this moment where I honestly had to laugh and it took me completely out of the story. Jason is on the run. He's just got to this diner where he'll learn about Brian, the citizen detective's death. And he's just started talking to these truck drivers. And literally, this is one of the first things one of the truck drivers says to Jason. Completely unprompted, mind you. Jaybird drives for us. We're with Collins Consolidated out of Wilmington. We got one of the biggest private fleets in the mid-Atlantic. Almost 25,000 of us on the road. We'll find that asshole who shot him. The bearded trucker lifted an unruly red eyebrow. We're on the lookout, all of us. Yes, this is totally how real people talk to each other. Imagine someone comes up to you and is like, Hi, I work for Google, based out of California. We have almost 140,000 employees, and we're one of the largest technology companies in the world. With our multitude of products and services, you can count on us to help you with all of your technical needs. If that happened, you'd be like, wow, the robot revolution must have happened while I wasn't looking. Because that's not how real people talk, much less truck drivers. And part of the issue with this continuous info dumping is that it really contributes to how boring the writing is. Remember how I mentioned earlier that the first half of this book is incredibly slow and boring? Well, a huge part of what contributes to this issue is the writing. For example, consider this conversation, which, by the way, is the conversation referenced in the Goodreads review that I read to you guys all the way back at the beginning of the episode. Now you are going to get the entire conversation and you are going to realize that what the reviewer was saying was completely accurate. Buckle in. This is this is going to take a minute. Thanks, I set the groceries on the counter. I guess we're not the usual, whatever you call us, applicants. Dom put his messenger bag on a kitchen chair. Anyway, the investigation into your daughter's murder is in full swing. How, if you're here? I unpacked eggs, Big oranges and romaine lettuce and put them in the fridge. Wiki and I aren't on the investigation team. What team are you on? I put a block of cabo cheese and a pack of sliced turkey into the fridge. They call us the babysitter's club. Funny, I smiled. It gets old, Dom chuckled. My team gets you through the application process, then hands you off to the U.S. Marshals. 
They run Witsack. So who runs the investigation? I put away apples and grapes and packets of vanilla Yoplait. Agents on the investigative team. I meant their names. Joe Watanabe is the case agent and Matt Riley is the laboring oar. Riley briefs me and I keep you in the loop. Dom leaned against the counter. Can I talk to them directly if I want to? I put away 2% milk in a tub of Turkey Hill vanilla. Yes, they'll be talking to you soon to get any information you may have. But nothing new on Milo? I pulled out a green pack of cookies and folded the empty grocery bag. They have so much to go on. This is too soon. Maybe he was right, but I had barely slept replaying what had happened. I still couldn't get Allison's blood out from under my fingernails. I didn't know if I wanted to. I was half in and half out of my own life. My new life. Our new life. From now on, if you make a list, I can get whatever you need. Food, supplies, whatever. So we don't do the shopping? No. Don't worry. I get Tate's. Best chocolate chips ever. Dom smiled slyly, gesturing at the cookies. They're good for breakfast, too. Is that a hint? I opened the bag, releasing a sugary smell. Want one? No, I want two. Dom accepted the cookies, eagerly reminding me of Allison. She'll eat you out of the house and home, my father used to say. I took a bite of the cookie, which tasted buttery and delicious. Wow. Right? Dom grinned, chewing. Have I bored you to sleep yet? If it's nighttime when you're listening to this, probably. I mean, yes, I love Tate's cookies as much as the next person, but forgive me if an entire conversation whose sole purpose seems to be name-dropping food brands isn't exactly my idea of thrilling, because in case you have forgotten, and you probably have, this is supposed to be a thriller. And I think this is one of those moments that shows you just how much the first half of this book especially really, really, really needed an editor. Here, let me show you. I, an amateur writer, okay, I fully admit it. I'm working towards being a professional, but I am an amateur writer. I make so many mistakes in my own writing, including being too wordy and not wanting to cut stuff out. I am bad about this too. Even I can edit this down for you really easily. Here, let me show you. I can condense that entire endless conversation into two sentences, okay? Two sentences. Here we go. I put the groceries away while Dom explained that investigative FBI agents Joe Watanabe and Matt Riley were in charge of apprehending Milo. Eventually, we'd be passed over to the U.S. Marshals, who ran WITSEC, but for now, we'd be watched over by Dom and Wiki, who were part of the so-called Babysitter's Club. There you go. Two sentences, and I managed to fit in all of the pertinent information that it took the author two no, three pages to convey. Well, I mean, we did lose the very important part where we learn about how delicious Tate's cookies are. But hey, writing requires sacrifices sometimes. Do keep in mind that I'm not like 
bashing on just the author here. I'm mainly actually bashing on the publishing house because this is not like a self-published book, okay? This is a traditionally published book put out by an imprint of Penguin, one of the big five publishers. They can afford editors, okay? And I don't know why they didn't bother to do that for this book. My final issue with the writing is, again, a dialogue problem. The author has this really weird thing where when she wants to give a minor character who appears for one scene some quirks or individuality, instead of giving them, I don't know, a personality, she'll instead do this really strange thing where she introduces a verbal tick into that character's dialogue. And when you're trying to read the book, it scans so weird and disjointed that it took me out every time. For example, Lucinda's mother appears in one scene. They're talking to her on a video call with her when she's, you know, in the nursing home. Here are some examples of her dialogue, okay? Yes, very nice. Everyone here is very nice. Oh ho, oh ho. Oh ho, thank you. You're very nice. You're very nice. Oh ho, oh ho. Yes, yes, I'd love to say hello. Oh ho, oh my, you're so silly. You're so silly. He's so handsome. My, my. Oh ho, oh ho. <laughs> um, <clears throat> okay. Uh, are, are you, are you annoyed yet? And also, please keep in mind that this, this is supposed to be representative of a character with dementia. And personally, I find it... Like, I don't have dementia, obviously, and none of my loved ones do, thankfully. But if I had a loved one with dementia, or if I had dementia myself, I think I would find this representation very offensive. Like, it seems so infantilizing and childish. And yes, dementia does affect your brain. But I don't think it's to the point where you're sounding like this like you're in a children's picture book i don't know anyway but given that her mother does have dementia i thought at first when i read this scene that she would be the only character doing this and it it would still be weird and offensive but if she were the only character doing this then it would have come across as like the author's way of trying to show that she has dementia but no Unfortunately, Lucinda's mother is not the only character who speaks this way. Here are some examples of Paul Hart's wife, Pam, talking. And again, she is a character who appears only once. The context here is that she is on Brian, the Citizen Detective's so-called podcast. I don't know them, but what the hell? I have nothing better to do. I've seen every show on Netflix. Ha! Neither do I, and I'm married to the guy 26 years. Ha! That I am. I got honesty and brutality. Ha! I don't know anybody named Lucinda, but if she had a pulse, I'm not surprised Paul's screwing her. She wasn't the first, and she won't be the last. Ha! Ha! Are you trying to shock me? Who does Pam think she is? A character from Peanuts? Because that's not the way any sane human talks. 
So yeah, the writing made this reading experience incredibly unpleasant. But you know what's even worse than the writing? That's right. We're going to wrap this up by talking about the book's themes. What exactly is this book trying to say beyond Jason Bennett is the most amazing, perfect, awesome, cool, big, strong, manly man to never exist? Two things. It is trying to tell us two things. One, if your significant other cheats on you, then you need to forgive them. And not because they have earned or deserve your forgiveness, but that's just what you're supposed to do when they cheat on you, apparently. Remember how Lucinda cheated on Jason with Paul Hart? And I said that Lucinda's excuses were straight out of the cheater's handbook. Let's, let's run through a couple highlights of the argument that Lucinda and Jason have after he finds out, shall we? Jason, I'm so sorry, so sorry. I love you. I swear it was a mistake, a horrible mistake. It's over now. I'm surprised, so surprised. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, Lucinda's eyes brimmed with tears. It just happened. I met him doing corporate portraits last summer. You slept with a corporate portrait? You hate that work, you hate those accounts. I made a mistake, a terrible mistake. There we go, it was just a mistake. I didn't mean to. You know, cheating is just so easy, it just kinda happens, you know? One second, you're a faithful partner just doing your job. And the next, you just find yourself having an affair. It's not even something you really have to think about, you know, or something that you have to betray your spouse's trust to do. They're not paying you enough attention. You suddenly start an affair. It's actually kind of scary if you think about it. You know, it, it could happen. It could happen to anyone. It's like spilling your coffee. It's just a mistake. Oh, here's another one from the greatest hits list. It didn't last long. I broke it off and it didn't matter. He didn't matter. That makes it worse. I can't believe you would cheat on me with somebody who didn't matter. I knew that excuse would be in there somewhere. It didn't matter. It's not a big deal. Why are you so upset? You're the one who really actually matters to me. Whoa. Thanks. I can really tell how much you love me and value my feelings, you know? Not like you betrayed my trust or anything. Immediately after he finds out during this argument, Jason is obviously really angry. He's all like, Lucinda looked at me teary-eyed and vulnerable. But I feel so guilty. Good. Feel guilty for cheating on the best husband ever. Lucinda managed a shaky smile. I don't deserve you. Agreed. I wasn't kidding. We done here? I'm like, oh, whoa, whoa. Okay, slow down there. Was it bad for Lucinda to cheat? Yes, of course. But I don't think it would hurt Jason to, you know, be a little more humble than a best husband ever. Big, strong, manly man, sure. But um, best husband ever? I mean, you do you, I guess, but personally, I still have some, you know, modicum amount of hope left that Jason is not as good as it gets when it comes to husband material. Maybe I'm just naive. 
Anyway, so Jason starts out being rightfully upset. But over the course of the book, he basically gets peer pressured into forgiving her. First, we get Dom talking to Jason. I don't know if I can forgive Lucinda. I don't know how you can get past that. That's your pride talking. Pride. Pride. Okay. I mean, maybe, yeah, if what bothers you the most about cheating is like, my partner slept with someone else. But I think it is generally accepted that what is so hurtful about cheating is the betrayal of trust on a major level. In any relationship, monogamous or otherwise, you set explicit or implicit boundaries, right? In a monogamous relationship like Lucinda and Jason's marriage, the implicit boundary is that you do not sleep with anyone else. And in order to violate that boundary, particularly for an affair that lasted like an entire month, I believe, that means Lucinda was lying to her family constantly for weeks and she never confesses was never planning to confess ever imagine that your partner is capable of that level of deceit and on top of that never once feels bad enough about it that they need to tell you how do you even begin to rebuild that kind of betrayal of trust but according to Dom here, the problem is not what Lucinda did. The problem is Jason's pride. So here's what with Lucinda. Decide what you want. Decide what matters to you the most, your pride or your family. It's not that simple. Then it's not for you, Dom shrugged. But I see what you went through for Lucinda and Ethan. You risked your life. Hell, you're risking your life tonight. If you forgive her, you get your family back. First off, love that the burden is being placed on, the emotional burden is being placed on the person who was hurt here. It's how it usually works, right? It's the victim, you know? They need to step up and be the stronger person. Second off, second off, you get your family back? Is Dom being serious right now? I mean, I guess kids of divorced parents just don't have a family anymore. Like, what is this, the 1950s? But more seriously, this just reeks of stay together for the kids syndrome. And that really, really sucks because so many people just cannot seem to come to terms with how incredibly hurtful that kind of thinking is. Yeah, kids are totally going to be happier growing up in a household where their parents hate each other's guts. That is definitely a logical way of thinking. But Jason eventually comes around. He's like, yes, I should totally get back together with the woman who cheated on me because these random people I just met told me I should. Jason, do you love the woman? Yes or no? I flashed on that kiss. Wow. Yes. Then you forgive her. That's what love is. Forgiveness. Judgment belongs to God Almighty, not you. Again, because the burden of forgiveness and redemption should obviously rest on the person who was hurt, not the person who hurt them. 
And that's what bothers me about this subplot. It's not about Lucinda working to earn forgiveness or even Jason's friends pressuring him to forgive her on the basis of Lucinda's character or integrity. It's about forgiving her simply because that's apparently the right thing to do. Always, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of whether or not forgiveness has been earned, the burden is being placed on the victim, and that is so messed up. Because here's the thing, right? I don't necessarily believe that you should never, ever forgive cheaters. I think there can absolutely be cases where the cheater sincerely feels bad and works to ensure that it never happens again. Do I think it happens very often? No. Would I stay with a cheater? No. Period. Full stop. No exceptions. However, I do think that there are circumstances. There exist circumstances under which it might potentially make sense to stay with a cheater. But every one of the potential circumstances I can think of involves the cheater stepping up and developing as a person. Not the person who was cheated on stepping up and developing as a person. You are not obligated to forgive someone who cheats on you even if you still love them, even if you have kids with them. And yet, that's the message of this book. Forgive your cheating wife or you're not going to be a real family anymore. What a great message. Very progressive. The kind of thinking we need in 2023. All right, let's move on to the other message that this book keeps trying to hit you over the head with, which is one, systems are uniformly bad. Two, individuals are almost uniformly good. Three, individuals are totally capable of defeating systems on their own. Jason puts his trust in the FBI only to discover that they're not actually interested in bringing his daughter's killer to justice. Gangs are bad, but George Varia actually turns out to be a good guy who avenges Allison's death. Jason turns into a one-man superhero because everyone and everything else is against him and succeeds. Now, what's frustrating about this message is that I don't necessarily disagree with it in that systems are often the root cause of injustice and good people can get caught up in bad systems, right? And furthermore, systems can corrupt people. That's why we often talk about systemic issues, right? But... The way that this particular book treats this subject is so simplistic and just stupid and it renders the message invalid because you cannot possibly agree with the message as it's presented by the author. Two issues. Number one, gangs. More specifically, George Varia's vindictive murderous drug trafficking gang. At the beginning of the story, they are the Bennett's number one enemies. They burn down the Bennett's property and are actively threatening the lives of both the Bennett's and anyone they're close to. But when Jason finally convinces George that Milo was the one who killed Junior, something happens. 
Jason becomes increasingly sympathetic to George to the point where this is what Jason says to George as he's dying. I got you, pal. My throat thickened unaccountably. You're a good bad guy. Now, I can understand the temporary alliance that Jason and George form. I mean, they're both motivated by their mutual hatred for Milo. They have a common goal. I can even understand Jason feeling drawn towards George because it's been pretty well documented that gang leaders, like leaders in other contexts, are often charismatic people. For example, I remember reading like years ago, I think at this point, that there was a book about Al Capone that talked about the multifaceted aspects of his life like he was a gang leader a violent murderous one but he was also like a loving father and husband you know like that however i draw the line at calling george good and i definitely absolutely draw the line at defending or at least trying to justify george and his gang activities here's jason talking to george you make it sound like a corporation it's a business like any other. It sells death and crime. Cigarette companies sell death. Drug companies sell rehab. Like, no. Just, just no. Do corporations do unethical and vile things? Yes, of course. There are so many well-documented cases of companies throughout history being absolutely disgusting. But your argument should not be, well, since legally legitimate corporations are bad, therefore, gangs are not bad. That's like saying, well, this other guy is racist, so it's okay for me to be racist too, right? That's not logical. And also, the moment you start trying to defend a murderous, vindictive gang leader... That's the moment you undermine the legitimacy of any argument you are trying to make. Because maybe George Feria didn't kill Allison, but he almost certainly has killed other innocent people that also had families who mourned them. And secondly, the author's argument seems to be that if you cannot get things done within a system, for example, if you can't accomplish justice within a system, then your solution should be to turn into an individual superhero like Jason and accomplish your goal while being directly in conflict with said systems. You know, FBI not (laughs) able to apprehend your daughter's killer because they're working with said killer. Oh yeah, why don't you just fight the FBI? That sounds like a really great idea. But putting aside for a moment the sheer implausibility and honestly irresponsibility of this an individual can solve anything attitude, the author's solution only seems to ever involve evading the system rather than actually doing anything to change said system. At the end of the story, Jason and his family return to their old lives, presumably happy to go right back to the way things were. So what's the message here? That it's bad when their family is affected by systemic injustice and Jason will turn into Captain America to do something about it. But once they get justice, 
it doesn't matter what happens to anyone else. Great message. Brilliant storytelling. I feel like I read something really meaningful and thought-provoking. Overall, this book, from its ridiculous plot to its infuriating characters, to its sloppy execution, to its shallow and stupid messaging, was just an absolute waste of my time and probably one of the worst thrillers I've ever read. Definitely the worst I've read this year so far. And like I said throughout the episode, I would have forgiven this book a lot of its sins if it had at least been fun to read, but it wasn't. It was tedious and boring and downright unpleasant. And now that I have spent way too long talking about it and analyzing it and complaining about it, I cannot wait to never have to think about it again. With all of that said, however, I do feel a little bad about going so hard on this book and If you know of any better thrillers this particular author has written, please feel free to let me know and I will definitely do a follow-up episode as kind of an apology, I guess, for being so harsh in this review. You can just go to my linked Substack post, you know, book suggestions for the podcast and just, you know, put some context, like, this is a better thriller by Lisa Scottoline, please read and review, you know, something like that, and I, I will definitely check it out, because my point is never to be harsh, or mean, or, you know, like that, I'm just mostly having fun here, but this was a really frustrating book for me to read, and I'm glad that I was able to kind of get that out of my system. For a better thriller that is clearly aimed at a similar target audience and which also deals with the themes of family and grief and which features a parent who will do pretty much anything to help their daughter, I would recommend The Night She Disappeared by Lisa Jewell. It is also a recent thriller. I believe it came out in 2022 also. And it's about a mother who's searching for the truth about what happened the night her daughter Tallulah disappeared. And I found it a far more exciting and, you know, thrilling thriller than this book. It actually packed some surprising emotional punches, and I was blindsided by it, so two thumbs up. There were some moments I found maybe could have been more sensitive in regards to its portrayal and discussion of bi people. But it's at the very least light years ahead of this book in terms of trying to be socially progressive and actually attempting to follow through on it. Happy Pride Month, I guess. Oh, speaking of which, I, I it's not like I forgot that this was Pride Month and I did. I kind of had this thing where I read a couple of literary fiction books in a row that dealt with like queer people and queer themes. And I kind of wanted to do an episode like a miniseries. Sorry on literary like queer books but I ended up not doing it at the last moment because I thought it's a lot of work you know what I mean like literary books in general are very thick and I don't mean thick as in like they're long they just pack a lot you know within them and in general I don't read a whole lot of literary fiction and I didn't want to you know misinterpret or oversimplify when I was doing my analyses and so that just kind of (laughs) got you know 
put put in the put in the backlist for now but at some point I will flesh that series out because I do want to you know get get more into like literary fiction and talking about it in the future so it won't happen you know in time for pride month but it will be an upcoming mini series at some point in the future anyway just wanted to say I didn't forget about it or anything I just it didn't it didn't work out this year you know so yeah, definitely check out The Night She Disappeared by Lisa Jewell for a better thriller that I feel is pretty similar to this one, and hopefully you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Alright, I am finally finished with this episode. It took me a while to pull together and to record, and you know, it's only the first episode in our miniseries on bad thrillers. I did have a lot of fun doing it, though, as I predicted. The reading experience was a nightmare. Talking about it, though, was fun. And I will be back soon with our next bad thriller. As I keep mentioning, please, please, please drop me any suggestions if you have ideas for bad thrillers. I only need one more for this series right now, but since I am planning to make this a recurring mini-series in the future, I will need more recommendations as well, so please let me know if you have any ideas. Okay, that is finally everything for this episode. This has been the 2AM Book Review Club. As a special surprise, I am going to be releasing two episodes this week, so you'll see me again real soon. But thanks so much for joining me and be sure to check out the second episode of the Bad Thrillers miniseries, which should be out at the same time as this one. And after you finish listening to that one, then I will be back next week at 2 a.m. So until then, have a great week and happy book travels.